This is the good life. When's the last time you said that? Have you ever said that? You ever been experiencing something that you just took it all in and you said, this is the good life. There's a phrase in the middle of our passage today from 1 Peter 3 that says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Well, that's all of us, isn't it? Who, who of us doesn't want that? We're, we're all pursuing the ability to love life and see good days. I mean, if you watch TV, that's what our commercials are all about, are they not? Our commercials are about the vehicles that will transport us to the good life. They're about the beer that we will drink while we're enjoying the good life. They're about the financial advisors that will make sure we can afford the good life. Right, those are some of the best commercials, right? Those, those financial planner commercials have the picture of the grandparent hand in hand with the little grandchild on the edge of the seashore, right? The good life. Peter, writing about the good life, this is unlikely. It's unlikely on multiple levels. It's unlikely, given the situation that Peter's readers find themselves in, in the midst of suffering. You mean to tell me this is the good life, Peter? Peter's saying it can be. That, that's unlikely. It's also unlikely how Peter encourages folks to go about obtaining the good life. The, the means he prescribes for achieving the good life are unlikely. But they are incredibly helpful, not just for first century Christians in Asia Minor, but for 21st century Christians in Orangeburg and wherever it is that you happen to be as you listen to this. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter 3, five verses, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For... Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, we long for the good life. We long for our days to be filled with good that we might be able to say we love living our lives. And you share that desire for us. 
And you have prescribed a way and a means and a method for us to go about that. That in our folly, we often reject thinking we know better. So Lord, come this morning and and correct us. Come this morning and, and, and challenge us if we think that there's not good life to be had. If we, like these Christians Peter was writing to, find ourselves in the midst of suffering and say, can this really be the good life? Would you meet us this morning, O God? And would you change us? Would you help us to see how Jesus factors into all of this, even into our pursuit of the good life? We ask for this help in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. What we have here is essentially a recipe. It's it's a recipe for the good life. Now, Shay and I are always on the hunt for good recipes. We are trying to keep all these children fed. We are trying to do it in between soccer practice and ballet practice and school and all of the things filling our crazy schedule. And so we will often text one another, here's a recipe I found, what do you think of this? And one or the other will reply back and say, "Mm, I don't know, those ingredients look a little funny to me. Or, I don't know, that method doesn't seem like it would work very well. In a sense, what Peter's describing here is a recipe for the good life. We've got ingredients. Verse 8, ingredients for the good life, these five virtues, if you will, these five goals to be pursued if we want the good life. And then verse 9, we have the cooking method, how we're going to go about the pursuit of the good life, what's involved. Then verses 10, 11, 12 are actually a quote lifted almost verbatim from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 14. Psalm 34, we've already seen, is very much on Peter's brain. He quoted directly from it back in chapter 2, verse 3, about tasting the Lord's goodness. There are several other allusions to it in 1 Peter. And so verses 10 and 11 here from Psalm 34 don't really introduce new material. It's mainly just a repetition. It's a reinforcing by Peter of of what he's already said in verses 8 and 9. And then in verse 12, which is still part of that Psalm 34 quote, we get an assurance that we will need. So at first glance, this recipe, it might seem to you one of the ones that we ought to cast aside. I'm not quite sure about all these ingredients, Peter. Uh, This method you've got, Peter. Ooh, that's a strange one. But as it turns out, this recipe is actually a keeper. It ought to go in heavy rotation in your cooking repertoire. Because the outcome will still be what we all want. It's the good life. So let's begin with the ingredients. These these virtues, if you will, these goals, these things to pursue, these are vital. Peter knows how important they are. If these Christians are to sustain a community among themselves as they live in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world. He knows they've got enough problems and pressures from the outside. They definitely don't need 
internal strife to make their situation even worse. They need these virtues. And most of these virtues, with one notable exception, are commonly promoted in Greco-Roman society. Right? These are good things to make good citizens. But once again, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Peter's going to take what he can from society at large. He's going to tweak it if he needs to, put, put a Christian spin on things. And he's going to, often very subtly, subvert what he needs to when it doesn't line up with the gospel. Because we know lots of our culture around us is just antithetical to the gospel. All right, so let's look at these ingredients. For ingredient number one, unity of mind. You need to have this, Peter says. You need to be like-minded. Maybe your translation says you need to be in harmony with the others. Now, this is certainly one that the Greeks and the Romans would have celebrated because they know just how important it is to be a stable society. If you're going to have a stable society, you've got to get all the lemmings thinking the same thing, liking the same thing. You're much less likely to have conflict and revolt that way. And so as far as culture and society are concerned, this would even filter down to some fairly common and trivial matters. You'd like the same music. You'd read the same authors, etc., etc. I'm pretty sure, though, that Peter's not too concerned about unity in the trivial matters. When, when he's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor, he is well aware that this Christian community is incredibly diverse. It's a mixture of all kinds of folk with lots of differences. But he knows there's one very important thing that does unite them. And it must unite them, especially given, given these hostile environs they find themselves in. It's the gospel. It's their common faith in the cross of Christ and the salvation offered therein. That must be the glue that holds them together. Uh, it's all of this glorious gospel goodness that Peter began this letter with back in chapter 1. They've got to agree on that. They've got to be of one mind about that, about how God caused them to be born again about how he's given them a living hope, an inheritance that's being kept for them, how they're being kept for the inheritance, about how they haven't seen Jesus like Peter has, but they still love him, how they're rejoicing together. These are all the vital things they have to agree on, and it's agreement on these things that will hold them together despite their great diversity in other areas. Now, Peter's not the only one to recognize how important this is. Paul often writes about this like-mindedness too. Uh, Philippians 2 is probably the, the, the classic chapter on this. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Peter writes, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, many of the words that you're going to find in in our passage today, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, another word for harmony, and of one mind. He even goes on a few verses later to be even more specific about what mind they are to have. Have this mind, he says in verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's the mind of Christ that we are to be united in. It's a crucial first ingredient. Now, as we look at these ingredients, keep in mind what the recipe is supposed to create for us. What's the end result? It's the good life. Next ingredient, sympathy. You also saw mentioned in Philippians 2. Now, this really requires a focus on others, much like that Philippians 2 passage. If you were to read the whole Philippians 2 passage, it's considering others. It's being focused on them instead of yourself. Literally, the word sympathy, sim, meaning with, coming from pathos, feeling. You're feeling with. And it takes both parts. You've got to have both parts. You've got to be with people, by their side, in their joys so you can rejoice with them, in their sorrows so that you can cry with them, so that you can be a shoulder upon which they can cry. This can't be done from a distance. You've you got to be willing to enter into their experience. Don't we have the, the perfect example of this and, and model in Jesus? writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 15 says that he's a savior who sympathizes with us. He's a savior that sympathizes specifically with our weaknesses. And he didn't do it from a distance. He came. He entered in. He he took on flesh. He entered into our experience as humans tempted humans even he felt that with us so that he could rescue us from it sympathy for those we're in community with leads us to is an ingredient is part of the good life the third ingredient brotherly love Now, this is the third time Peter's mentioning this in his letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, he said that believing in the gospel produces in us a sincere brotherly love. And then he urged us in chapter 2, verse 17, to love the brotherhood. Now, this is one where Peter's tweaking a bit. He's upping the ante because the broader culture at large would have certainly encouraged warm feelings for your fellow man, camaraderie, but, but this, is di- this is different. This is deeper. And it's not just wishful thinking to be aspired to. There is a genuine root and a cause 
that makes this love possible. It it goes back to that new birth in chapter 1. If we really have been caused to be born again by our Heavenly Father, then we are reborn into a new family. With everyone else he has caused to be born again. And so to say brotherly here is more than just an adjective to describe the quality of the love. It's also describing the reality of the relationship that exists between the parties. We're siblings now. We are sisters and brothers, part of the same family. And ingredient four is closely related. Ingredient four won't happen without this love just described. ESV lists the fourth ingredient as a tender heart. If you've got the King James, it says we need to be pitiful, full of pity. Other translations say merciful or compassionate. That's really what we're going for here. Uh, The the root of this word, uh, for a tender heart or for compassionate, has to do with the inner organs. Has to do literally with the bowels. But not in terms of digestion. Uh, In terms of being moved. When you feel something so deeply. You felt that before. You feel it deep down inside. Now, in in Greco-Roman literature, this word for compassion or mercy or pity, um, it's, it's really only used in describing obligations that you have to family members. Right? This is only a word to be used for kinship obligations. How perfect is that? Because <laughs> we've just talked about how we are literally members together of a new family. Scripture speaks often of Jesus being moved with compassion. Again, it's that same thing deep down, right? When he looked on the crowds, he looked out on the crowds and saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that they were caught. They were slaves to sin. He was moved with compassion. He was moved to show them mercy. He was moved to have pity on them, on us. And now we are enabled to love like that. Having been the recipients of his compassion, we're now moved to show that compassion to others because this is how it works, guys. Recipients of that kind of love and compassion love and show compassion to others. Recipients of that kind of love and compassion are the ones who love and show compassion most deeply. Now, we don't do it instantly. We often don't do it very well. But as we're being conformed to the image of the one who did do it perfectly, we will make slow and fitful progress. Fifth ingredient whipping up a big old batch of the good life 
Here's the one that would have stuck out like a sore thumb to the Greeks and the Romans. You want me to add in a heaping cup full of what? A humble mind. Humility. So again, Peter seems very adept. He embraces what he can. He tweaks what he needs to. But sometimes he's left with no other option than just to reject outright what culture is saying. And there's no other way around this one. Because humility strikes at the very essence of the gospel that we believe, right? That, that Philippians 2 passage, right? The very mind we are to have, the mind of Christ. Well, what was the mind of Christ? It was a mind that was willing to, to humble himself, emptied himself, didn't cling to the rights that were his. Did he have to? No, but he was willing to. He was willing to take the lower place for the benefit of others. That's what humility is. And the Greeks and the Romans, they wanted none of it. They despised the thought of it. And the Pharisees and religious leaders so influenced by their surrounding culture, this is part of why they rejected Jesus outright. Because to humble oneself like Jesus was doing was shameful. It was a sign of weakness. See, they thought the most important thing you could do was be important and defend that importance, that status, that honor. It had to be preserved at all costs. Not so with Jesus. Jesus who desperately wanted us to know how gentle he was. How lowly he was. Matthew 11. Come to me. Know me. Know my heart. Know that I'm gentle and I'm lowly. That's the same word here for a humble mind. That's what Peter is encouraging of us. He's encouraging of us what he had to learn the hard way. He wasn't always lowly in mind. He was brash and proud and self-confident. But all that would eventually be crushed. Ground into the dust of his failures, of his denials. But he was learning. He was learning and he wants us to do the same. Five ingredients that Peter lists. Worthy of our focus, worthy of our pursuit. And then we find in verse 9 our method, if you will. You got a recipe and you got a method. You're going to bake it or roast it or grill it or slow cook it. If you're fancy, you might put it in the sous vide thingy, right? If you got one of those. Sometimes the method, though, seems a little odd. The oddest method that I think that I've encountered in a recipe is for, I love cooking Cincinnati chili. But the first time I looked at the recipe and it said that you're supposed to boil the ground beef instead of browning, and I said, you're going to do what? That's gross. Why would I do that? 
But I did it, and it turned out like it's supposed to, and it's really good. But it seemed like such an odd method to me. This method that Peter is giving us here, oh boy, what an odd method to go about having the good life. The ingredients there, sketchy enough as it is, but then this method, which is actually something that we're going to do, Technically, one thing we're not going to do and one thing that we are, and it's a pair that go together. And if humility boggled the mind of the Greeks and the Romans, this method here is going to push them right over the edge. Because it's a principle of non-retaliation. When someone commits evil against you, do not repay evil. When someone reviles you, do not revile in return. Now, nothing could be more contradictory to human nature. Nothing could be more contradictory to the norm that society expects, be it 1st century Greco-Roman or 21st century Orangeburg. The command here is very simple, at least from an intellectual standpoint, to understand what is being commanded, right? No revenge. No revenge to be sought or acted out. Right? That's, that's incredible, right? <laughs> what, what fortitude would be required to, to do that? What, what strength of character not to pay back? But it's even more difficult and amazing than that. Because it's not just avoiding the negative of paying back, it's also engaging in the positive of blessing instead. Invoking the favor of God for the person who just insulted you, harmed you, did you dirty. That's not just difficult, that's impossible. One of the commentators that I read for this passage recounted a story of a soldier who lived in the barracks with the rest of his unit, and it was his personal, private, quiet habit each night to end the day reading his Bible and praying. Didn't make a big show of it, just did it, but one other soldier in his unit And that got under his skin. That irked him. And so one night while the soldier was praying, he was hit by a pair of filthy, dirty boots thrown from across the barracks. The next morning, the soldier who threw those boots awoke to find them returned at the foot of his bed, clean, polished, ready for inspection. Don't repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Several men in that unit over the next couple of weeks came to know the Lord. What enabled that soldier to do that? Uh, to overcome that base instinct to throw the boots right back where they came from. And I'm sure that many of his fellow soldiers would have 
been expecting it, would have even applauded him for doing it. Good for you. Stand up for yourself. Where did this superhuman strength come from to do something so unnatural? It came, of course, from the new birth. It came from the new birth that this type of behavior is evidence of. It came from this soldier having a keen awareness of his calling which is something that's mentioned explicitly here in verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, bless, for to this you were called. Deeply pressed into this soldier's psyche must have been the reality that he was a called man. Right? Peter opens this letter. Very first verse. I'm writing to elect people. I'm writing to elect exiles. I'm writing to people that God has called out. That God has plucked out of their sin and rebellion, called to be his own, called to receive blessing, called to receive an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. And this soldier must have had a firm grasp of this calling and of the full picture of this calling. Because this calling is a coin with two sides. This calling is on the one side a call to receive a blessing. And it's a call that on the other side is a call to extend that blessing to others. That's always been God's way. That's always been his plan. Think of, we were just in Genesis not too long ago. We looked at the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the same indicative and imperative that we see all over the scriptures. Called to be heirs of God's blessing, called to live a life of blessing. We heard it in in 1 John 4 that Alan read for us earlier. If we've been loved like that, we're going to love in return. Y'all, that's the good life. That life of blessing that is promised. And and it's not even promised as a reward. It's not like, all right, be a good little boy or good little girl, and I'm going to give you the good life uh, as some reward. It's just a natural consequence. Extending that blessing to others is itself a blessing. The the, the Lord's designed it to work that way. He's created you and designed a life for you to live that he knows what's best. He knows what's going to be most fulfilling and satisfying to your heart. And it's not the things that we're normally pursuing. It's things that work better. He knows that life works better when we live it according to his master plan. And that's what's going on with this quote from Psalm 34 in verses 10 and 11 of our passage today. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, 
Let him keep his tongue from evil. That's part of the good life. Right? When we say evil things, when we say deceitful things, that's weighing us down. That's keeping us from the good life. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him polish the boots instead of throwing them back. Let him seek peace. I'm looking for peace, but then let's also pursue it. Like, what do you do when you're pursuing something because it's elusive? It's hard to grasp. It's hard. It seems to be fleeing from you, but you're going to pursue it anyway. You're going to go after it. And then we get this great reassurance in verse 12. Because honestly, sometimes we have to wonder. If we don't defend ourselves, if we don't stand up for ourselves, are are we just being a doormat? Are we just letting people walk all over us? Can any good really come out of that? Well, it can if verse 12 is true. If it's true that God is watching and that he sees and that he knows. He knows that what happens to us, it's not hidden from his sight. Sometimes our, our sense of justice gets in the way a little bit. Right? Sometimes our, our sense of justice is offended by what happens to us, and we say, it's just not right. And that reaction in and of itself is often a holy response. Right? It's often a, a shadow of our being created in the image of God, who himself is deeply offended at injustice. So the impulse can be a holy impulse, but what we do with that impulse, well, we've got a choice to make, right? Because there's a right response and a wrong response. And so uh, our, our sense of justice is offended, and the wrong response is to let that cause us to act. Us to take matters of righting that injustice into our own hands. When the right response is to leave it up to him and to remember that he's got his eyes on us the whole time. He's seeing us. He's hearing our prayers. And he's also very much watching the evil as it unfolds and those who are perpetrating it. And he will be a far better enemy of those evildoers than you and I could ever think about being. You may even doubt or wonder, is it right for me to bless this person, to to invoke God's favor on this person who obviously despises him so, who is blaspheming him so. Similar concern, I guess, that we had a few weeks back when we were looking at Peter's command to honor everyone. Someone who had very thoughtfully chewed on what I had said and Peter's instruction said to me, Oh, how is this right? How, how, how can you honor someone who has committed such great evil? It doesn't seem right. Well, the very best way to honor them 
the very best way to bless them is to show them the undeserved, unmerited love of Christ and to tell them the good news of this Jesus, the preeminent non-retaliator. Tell them how we have experienced the greatest act of non-retaliation ever known. Tell them of how when we were still rebels and enemies, when we were still in our sins, this Savior sympathized with our weakness took on flesh and entered into our experience. Chose not to repay evil for evil, which he could have, but chose to bless instead. God grant that we could be more like Jesus in this specific regard. that we might see and know and appreciate how we have been sympathized with, how we have felt his compassion and his brotherly love for us, how he did not repay evil for evil when he could have just blotted us out and been perfectly just in doing so. Oh God, help us to know what it is to be loved like that so that we might love like that. Help us to appreciate the depth of the blessing that we have received and let that encourage us and indeed enable us to be a blessing to others, even those who would throw their dirty boots at us. Grant us your grace. Grant us long memories to remember everything that our Savior has done for us. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.